Toby Mac was DC Talk. Um, they did a, a good song, All I Want Is To Be In The Light. So I'm going to try and, and be in the light tonight. Okay. Um, hey, so Sam mentioned spring break mission trips, but I want to just see who all participated in spring break trips. Could you just stand so we can see? Right on. What I love about spring break trips is, is you took something from here to where you went, but then you also brought something back, I hope, okay? You got stirred up and you got some energy and the Lord spoke to you and maybe revealed to you something and you're still excited that you're talking about it right now as I'm trying to talk. Okay. <laughs> Y'all are, so this, the last two years, I don't know if it COVID kicked this in or what, but I've never encountered audiences that, that laugh lingers so long with you guys. If, you, if I dialogue with you guys about something like coleslaw, it's hard to bring you guys back. There is a strength to that. I, I would rather have that than a crowd that doesn't respond, right? Yeah. And that's why I've always liked Dryden, you know? He talks to me. Okay, so spring break mission trips. Uh, missions are not new in Acts. We're in Acts, if you've forgotten. We're in the book of Acts, okay? Um, God has a heart for all nations, okay? And, and God, at the very start in Scripture, says, be fruitful and multiply. Even that is missional, right? Okay? And, and from the start, you see, from Genesis to Revelation, his heart for the world, okay? Um, but specifically in Acts, we see, like, the first missionary journeys, okay? And so what you guys did over spring break was take mission trips, and that is, like, a direct result of what was begun 2,000 years ago in Acts, and we're following after that, and I think what we're going to do this summer is actually focus on Paul's missionary journeys to coincide with the crazy, cool summer mission trips we're taking all over the world, okay? Just a fun preview there, okay? Uh, but mission trips began with the early church as we know them, um, I think you can say that, and we are continuing them, but... Um, what I want us to look at tonight is, is first, in Acts, everything was confined to Jerusalem for a moment, okay? Hey, put up that first slide I got. We'll see this. That first, um, um, is there a one with a picture of the converging? Okay, so um, you guys saw this. Sam had this in one of his slides earlier this semester. And that is a picture of Jerusalem. And for the day of Pentecost, Jews came together for the day of Pentecost, but they were spread out all around that part of the world, okay? And they came together for, they didn't come together for an outpouring of the Spirit. They came for Pentecost, but the Holy Spirit was poured out, and people speak in other tongues and are filled to overflowing, right? And then these people, let's, let's read some of it. How's that? Okay. We've already read this this semester, so this is going to be like rehashing for you, Okay. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Remember this? If you don't, I'm reading it right now. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled. Okay, so then some folks are like, what in the world 
is going on. And they're like, are these people drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning? Okay, the explanation is given, no, that's not the case. But here's what they did experience. People from all around that region, representing all kinds of different languages, they have this ex experience. This is a Acts 2, verse 11. Both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we heard them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. People from Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, all around that part of the known world, they come to Jerusalem. The spirits pour, poured out, and they hear people speaking in tongues, but actually their language is declaring the wonders of God. Okay? Then if we go from Acts 2 to verse 42, we looked at this earlier in the semester. This is about the fellowship of the believers. What am I doing? I'm pointing out the goodness of God is being poured out in specifically Jerusalem. Here's an account of it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles in Jerusalem. Okay? All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in, the, in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And what happened next? Right, that's right, Jonathan. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The goodness of God was being poured out in Jerusalem. His blessings were being poured out, and people were coming to Jesus. Okay? But then, if we go from there and look at Acts 1.8, what does it say? It says this, Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, okay? Lord, would you help us to get this message tonight? Would you help us to get what you're saying? Would you help us to see what happens in these early days and see what happens when the church is persecuted, how they respond, and the blessings that actually come from it? We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Okay, so I just read from Acts 1.8, and it says, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria and to the end of the earth. For this to happen, we must flip the numbers and go from Acts 1.8 to Acts 8.1. I never noticed this before. It's pretty cool. If you go from Acts 1.8, you see what is being, like, this is what will happen. And then how does it happen? We go to Acts 8.1 and we see how it happens. Acts 8.1, this is right after Stephen's stoning that Trevor talked to us about, where Jesus was standing with arms wide open to receive Stephen, right? Acts 8.1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. That means persecution had gone on. Severe persecution, right? Okay. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, with, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Hmm. You see that? And ultimately, the end of the earth. So we go from Acts 1-8 to 8-1, and we see there is persecution. And our first response is, oh no. And then we see the fulfillment of God's plan. That we, that people, believers, would go out from wherever we are at. Okay? 
So then Acts 11 tells us more about this, about this scattering, okay? So Acts 11, 19 through 21, we're going to go through quite a bit of scripture here to start. Acts 11, 19 through 21, listen for where they go. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Ah, okay, we're seeing blessings poured out. The number is being added to, the church is growing, but it's now beyond Jerusalem. God's design is being fulfilled. Acts eleven twenty two to 24, then news of the things of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And what happened? A great many people were added to the Lord. Beyond Jerusalem, God's design. Acts 1-8 was now happening but it took persecution for it to happen. The church had to be scattered for it to happen. Persecution helps fulfill the destiny of the church, then and now. It's just that way. God has always operated this way. He wants to bless us that we might bless others. Yeah, you can finish that. And the work he has in mind and intends always falls short when we stay huddled together. And it's not just that we don't, those people beyond us don't get blessed. We actually don't get blessed because we don't operate in what he has us to operate in. We don't walk in what he has for us until we are usually under some pressure and have a responsibility for those around us. Okay? Man, I have an old friend He's no longer with us. He's one of the ODGs. His name is Francis Schaefer. I'm going to quote him twice tonight. He's helped me so much. And he, he, he had a way of, he actually put together some of his own words in his writings, words that weren't words until Francis Schaefer made them. And you pretty much only see them in his writing. But, uh, but one word that is, that it was before Francis Schaefer. He just likes to use it. Is the word extrude. He used the word extrude to describe what must happen to us as believers to, 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 be, be, to be put into a place of fruitfulness. He says most of us must be extruded to be put into a place where we are fruitful. What does extrude mean? That's what you're asking, right? Okay, here's a definition. Extrude means to be forced out under pressure and often heat into a desired shape. And I like to add this, and then placed into a useful position where you can be fruitful. Um, this is actually how many car parts are formed. Um, most girls probably haven't thought about this, but I've like looked at car panels and thought, hmm, that's a new fender on that car. That's a new front left fender. And I remember even as a kid, you're really going to be like, that's weird. But I was like, how does it do that? They extrude it, Okay. They extrude it. Now, if you don't think that way at all about cars, which most of us don't, um, it's the same way you get spaghetti noodles, right? Like you, you take the ingredients of pasta, right? 
and you put them into like a press and you press down and noodles come out, okay? But still my favorite analogy is, is this, okay? The Play-Doh press. <laughs> quick diversion, quick diversion. We'll get back on track if you guys will allow me to. I know you'll take a while, as I said. Didn't you want to try Play-Doh? Like when you hit that press and it comes out like a noodle. I, yeah, I ate Play-Doh. I ate Play-Doh. It's, Landon, they, they play, it's pretty salty. Yeah. How many of you guys, this is really important, ate Play-Doh more than once? Okay. Was that because you liked it? I, I ate it twice, and it was because the first time I, I just was playing, I was like, that just looked good. And then I didn't eat it long enough, and I was like, it looks good. I got to try it again. But it tasted the same. Okay. If you want to understand extruding, thank you for gathering yourself. Such maturity. If you want to understand extruding, just picture yourself being the Play-Doh where you're just kind of like, oh, 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 what's happening? That is a pretty good description of what it's like to be in the will of God sometimes. It's not like you're like, yes. You're like, whoa, uh, yes, Lord. And then like, what is happening? I don't really like how this feels. And that is sometimes exactly what it's like to be in the will of God. The will of God for your life is a place of fruitfulness. And so often we have to be extruded into it. And it's often a different place than what you imagined. And you just have to be extruded into it. Okay, you got a new word? Extruded. Stephen and Philip were extruded. Okay. We know, I, I argue this, like it, they're mentioned as deacons in the church that practice administration, but we know of them today, and you're going to hear more about them this semester, maybe even this summer, because of persecution. As I said originally, they were deacons, but we know of them today as Philip the evangelist and Stephen the martyr, Stephen being the first martyr, right? Here's Acts 8, verses 4, 1 through 8. It says, therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. That is Acts 1-8 happening, right? Judea, Samaria, the end of the earth. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were, were possessed, and many were paralyzed, many who were paralyzed, and lame were healed, and there was great joy in the city. Again, great stuff happening beyond Jerusalem because Philip is driven out by persecution, okay? What I kind of noticed here, it says that when they chose Philip and Stephen, and what they were chosen was to help with the administering of food to widows, okay? This is like a gift of administration. It says they chose them because they were men of faith. So I'm not saying they didn't operate in faith when they operated in this gift of administration, helping with the distribution of food. But I think their faith went to a new level. 
when they were scattered and persecuted, okay? And I, I want to say it this way. Philip moved from operating by a skill set to operating by a new level of faith, which comes about by extrusion, okay? Hmm. Have you guys read The Insanity of God? Anybody here read The Insanity of God? Okay. If you haven't, I'm going to read some to you and tell some stories to you tonight that will make you want to read this book. The Insanity of God is absolutely amazing. I want to share from it tonight because sometimes we can read in Acts and we can understand, okay, mission trips in Acts, spring break mission trips at San Houston. They're connected. But sometimes we need a little bit of in-between. Here's some in-between, okay? We're going to look at the 1950s in Russia. Anybody been thinking about Russia lately? Okay. The Russian government today um, is making some choices that most of us would strongly disagree with. Vladimir Putin specifically, right? Okay. Some things haven't changed. Um, in the 1950s, um, the communist government in Russia was very oppressive to the Christian church. Um, and there was a guy named Dmitry a Russian believer, a husband, a father, um, that unsuspectedly, unsuspectingly found himself a pastor. As you'll see, he did not consider himself a pastor. Communism had destroyed much of the churches, many of the churches and places of worship. And that's persecution. All right? Um, and so what he noticed is that his boys were not growing up in the way that he had been raised by his parents. He didn't even consider himself one with a great skill set to do this, but he said, we have no church to go to. What my parents passed on to me is not being passed on to my boys. And so he, he gathered his boys and his wife, and he began to share a weekly Bible story and discuss it with them. And actually went well enough that the boys themselves said, hey, can we, can we do more? Man, someday you're going to be a parent. And you're going to try and share principles and truth. And if your kids say, I want more, that's a good sign, okay? The boys responded well, and they asked if they could actually pray together and sing as a part of their family gathering, okay? And then as they began to do that, other families noticed that they had something. And friends and family members started to join them. And so they got to about 25 people in a tiny little home. And at that point... The, the, the police show up and accuse Dimitri of starting an illegal church. Listen to his response. I love it. He's not like playing them. He's not trying to get out of it. He's being genuine and honest. He says, an illegal church, how can you say that? I have no religious training. I am not a pastor. This is not a church building. We are just a group of family and friends getting together. All we are doing is reading and talking about the Bible singing, praying, and sometimes sharing what money we have to help out a poor neighbor. I would have to ask, ask Dimitri, how is that not a church? Right. Fully functioning. You know. Eventually, 150 people would come to Dimitri's tiny home before he was arrested. There are lots of other super cool details about Dimitri. You got to read the book on your own. I, mean, I think I'm leaving out some of the best, okay? But hopefully I'm whetting your appetite. So many, though, were blessed through his work. He spent 17 years in prison after that day when he was taken in for having 150 people come to his house. So many were blessed through his work. It all came about through persecution. Can I do one more story from the Insanity of God? Okay. Okay. 
So what I read was just the norm. Russia during the, the 50s, the 1950s, was severely restricted by their government. Um, often like Dmitri's case, resulting in imprisonment, physical torture, and even execution. Dmitri was supposed to be executed, and by miraculous work of God, he was not executed. You gotta read it, okay? Um, for security reasons, most house, house churches consisted of 10 to 20 people, and that was usually like family and extended family, um, extending only to those that they could trust. Um, but what happened is three different pastors recognized um, the weakness of no exposure for their youth to church and believers beyond their own family. So they thought they may, might think, hey, this is just, this is just a bell thing. <laughs> what they needed to see, this is, this is a worldwide thing, this is a God thing, and he is for all nations, okay? They wanted them to get a full picture. So three pastors very daringly gathered together and organized a youth conference, a nationwide youth conference, that resulted in the gathering of 700 young believers. Definitely did result in the, in the pastors going to prison. It was worth it. They would tell you this over and over. Um, what did the conference turn out like? The synergy of the conference was absolutely amazing. It was like taking a hot coal and putting it together with a bunch of hot coals, and if you do that, you get a roaring, flaming fire, right? That's what this was. It was a real outpouring of the Holy Spirit as these youth gathered together. But one of the cool things they did, this was not even like super deliberate. It was an idea they had that they executed. They had the youth during the week of the conference for an hour or so a day gather in small groups. Hello? They gathered them in small groups and had them. They didn't each have their own Bibles or their own hymnals or their own worship music, sheet music. Somebody usually did in the group. You would learn it and then share it with others, okay? So they did this. It wasn't like a test, but they wanted to see just how this was going. They gathered the students in small groups, and they asked them to together put together as much of the four New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they could. All the stories in proper sequence as much as they could. And then also to take all the songs they knew write them down and gather them and put them together. They gave them like an hour or so every day throughout that week. The results, they put together Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with only a half dozen mistakes. I'm a pastor. I'm licensed to minister. I couldn't do that. I just couldn't. I'm honest. I couldn't do that. That's what you call taking the word and hiding it in your heart. You know why that came about, though? The scripture, the word of God wasn't a matter of like, uh, I have nothing else to do. It was a matter of life and death. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. They were dependent on it for life. It was the only thing that actually sustained them in these hard times. How do you explain youth being able to put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the stories? There's a lot of stories. And if you've read the four Gospels, they're like put together differently in different Gospels, right? And they get it all straight. And then when it comes to songs, 1,200 songs. Have you guys heard of a heart song? The kind of a song that you sing from your heart that carries you through hard times? That's what these were. 1,200 songs that they collectively put together. So what do, what do we see? In the middle of persecution, the church 
like it always has, always will, is actually healthy and flourishing in the hardest of times. Maybe you've heard this, the blood of the martyrs is the, the seed of the church. Anybody heard that before? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. No doubt you could see this in Russia in, 1950, in the 1950s. But how about our time and our place? I mean, first off, it would be logical, proper for you to respond and say, well, we're not facing that level of persecution for one. If we are facing persecu persecution, it's quite a different form. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We'll get back to that, okay? But let's look for a moment at persecution today. First, we could say this. We could say, yes, we are not persecuted like they were in the 1950s in Russia or in communist China or many other places Chairman, under Chairman Mao in China. No, we, we are not presently persecuted like that. But we need to be aware of this, that outward and intense persecution in many parts of the world today is very real. In fact, more have been martyred in the last century than all of history combined. And we are pretty, in our bubble, unaware of that, blind to that. It's actually, it's a reality. But here, our persecution is not physical. It's quite subtle. But I want to say this, it can actually be pretty challenging. And sometimes challenging in such a way that we don't feel it so much, but it does strongly hinder us and keep us from becoming who we're supposed to be and the church and those around us from becoming who they're supposed to be. Okay, so we live in today what you could call, what you could call or would call a secular culture. Um, yes, we have, we have a strong, we have a, a strong Christian element in the United States, but by and large, we have become increasingly secular. Where you could call this more and more, you would, like Europe has been for a long time defined as a secular culture. We have followed them very well. And that's not all good. <laughs> what do I mean when I say secular culture? I mean this, that in a secular culture, you can be Christian, but you must stay in your corner. You don't actually bring all that the Bible says to the table in the public forum. It's fine for you to be a Christian, but there's some things within Scripture that you should not mention in the public setting if you want to do well, or you will be hindered. You will face opposition. So understanding that, it's tempting to just comply. And to be a Christian that says much of what the Bible says, but not all of what the Bible says. Because if you do that, well, you might lose your position. You might lose the status you want to have. Francis Schaeffer again, okay, he pointed this out, that at the altar of personal peace and affluence, and you could just simply say, getting what you want here and now, many have quieted their voices to not lose influence and position. It's easy to see others do that. It's very easy to see others do that. As we move forward in, in this time in our nation, it is going to be, you will have your own opportunity to fold or to move forward. On a secular university campus, there is plenty of opportunity. 
I'm going to move forward. <laughs> Luke 6.26 says this, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. Ouch. We have to understand this, that a lot of people that claim to like Jesus, that we want to be tight with, perceived well by, actually haven't met Jesus. And they claim to like him and speak well of him, but if they really met him, they would reject him. And they would reject you. There's generally two reasons why people don't like Jesus and don't like his followers. Number one, they don't like being told, and I could, I could say this, not they, we. <laughs> we're in the same camp. We're human beings. We're sinners. People don't like being told they're not good enough. We don't like being told we are sinners. We don't like being told we have to change. But if we can get past that, we get to come to the second thing that, that stumbles, makes people stumble. If we're willing to see our condition needs fixing, we don't like the solution of all Jesus and none of us. We want to help out, but instead are told to get out of the way and lay down our lives and take up his life. Where's my place in that? Right? And we stumble there because we're self-centered. And we want credit. So people don't like being told they're not good enough. And then when they finally face off of that, they don't like the solution. We don't like the solution. So both parties are offended. If we repeat Jesus' message, we will be hated and persecuted. We will also see the hungry and thirsty respond and be transformed. A message other than telling people you're sinners and you need to change in the only way is Jesus a message other than that cannot save anybody. It cannot transform anybody. If we repeat Jesus' message, we will be persecuted. We will also see the hungry and thirsty respond and be transformed. Contrary to that, if we don't, we will be anemic and deliver a message that may maintain personal peace and affluence. But it will be powerless to change anything or anyone. Okay. You may then say Okay, Jason, I see what you're saying. But you said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. If the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, then how do we plant the church in our time and place where we are not likely to get stoned like Stephen? Valid question? Okay, we're not likely to get stoned just yet. Okay? That day may come. And it won't take the form of stoning, probably not, but maybe another form. Who knows? If the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, then how do we plant the church in our time and see it be fruitful? Okay, let's go slow on this. What is in the blood? We say the life is in the blood. Okay? What is in the blood? Life is in the blood. Okay, then we have the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Okay, then what is another word for martyr? Anybody know? 
witness. Another word for martyr is witness. So blood equals life, martyr, martyr equals witness. Do you see that? We got two alternative words. And so we can take this statement. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We can say the life of the witness is the seed of the church. Do you follow the significance of that? The life lived dead to self and alive to Christ is the seed of the church. Okay, let's bring this all together. Our death means life to others. Living dead brings life. We die while we're yet alive that the life of Jesus might be manifest in us. Okay. How does this look? How does this look? Telling people they're sinners and that Jesus is the only solution isn't actually convenient or easy. You don't just accidentally do that. You have to determine it's true and it's necessary for people to hear it, for their lives to be saved for you to do it. You have to count the cost to do it. To do it actually involves you denying yourself. Dying to yourself, denying yourself. We're connecting the dots. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The life of the witness is the seed of the church. Okay, denying yourselves. I want to point out that in a microcosm sort of way, a lot of you guys practice this over spring break. You made sacrificial, unselfish choices to go on these spring break trips. You spent your time on others instead of yourselves, and you raised a budget which for many of you involved, involved giving your own money or uncomfortably asking people for their money, right? I'm pointing out you made unselfish, sacrificial choices, but you denied yourselves for the benefit of others that they might hear the good news, that you might serve other people, understanding that love finds a need and meet it, meets it, you went out, right? Okay, that follows, and some of you have already been asking this, and I want to further, further this. What if we were missional, like you guys were last week, or more than just last week? What if we took what we learned last week to those that went on spring break mission trips and applied it, even as some of you did this week, but next week, and the next week? So I'm saying, what if our daily lives were more missional? I'm asking that because it's a big question that helps answer what I've been asking. Hard times and persecution actually never make martyrs. Hard times and persecution actually never make martyrs, they prove martyrs. They prove who the martyrs are, who the witnesses are. They prove who already witnesses for Jesus, who has already laid down their life and taken up his in the present. 
in the daily practical situations of life that come their way one after another. I was with a, a missionary, an area director for the Assemblies of God, World Missions, and he was telling me about his first days as a missionary and kind of sharing his testimony. But he, he shared this. He said, when I first disclosed to my friends and family that I was going to the mission field and I told them where I was going to go, they panicked. They freaked out. They looked at him and they said, that's a missionary graveyard where you're going. That's a missionary graveyard. If you come out alive, your family won't be alive. You're going to lose something. To which he said, shouldn't I already be dead? Shouldn't I already be dead? He's right. That's Galatians 2.20. We, we have laid down our lives. We've taken up new lives in Christ. But to do that is a daily walk. One foot in front of the other. Not very glamorous. Can the worship team come back and join me? Here's the question. I started out saying the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We progressed to this. The life of the witness is the seed of the church. So how do we know? We read stories of like what happens in Russia in the 1950s. And you read that book and there's other stories that are even more intense. Gruesome, terrible, heart-wrenching. Extreme suffering. And you'll read that and you'll think, yeah, but we're not there. We're not facing that. And you will then wonder, okay, I'm not yet facing what Stephen faced. I'm not about to get stoned. But if I were in his place, would I respond like he did? You should ask that. How do you know? There's no set answer. I don't think you know, but I know this. If we lay down our lives now, that's how we will be ready for the day that we might actually have to lay down our lives. It's that simple. Martyrs are not made by persecution. They're proven. So whether or not you're willing to say yes to Jesus and give the ultimate sacrifice, give your life, it won't be like a mystery and then suddenly on that day you morph into something you're not. It's happening right now. It's it happening today. It was happening today with the choices you made. You're being a witness or you're not. You're denying yourself or you're not. And it's each step and each choice that you make that solidifies your character and you say no to yourself and yes to Jesus, you're being a witness. You're being a martyr. And you're being made ready for whatever is ahead of you. Whatever the Lord might have ahead of you. Lord, we thank you for this word. Would you help us to get it? Lord, where I've maybe not connected some dots, would you, would you fill that in, Holy Spirit? I invite you today on behalf of this, this family and this army to make us into people that would say yes to you no matter what the cost.
we know to get there, it takes one choice after another. It takes living life daily, denying ourselves, taking up the cross, and following Jesus. Would you help us to do that? Some of us have just had revelation from you, even this last week. I pray that we would act upon what you have shown us. I pray that we would act upon what you have shown us. That we'd put feet to what you're asking us to do. And that you would build our character, Lord. That we would be witnesses for you in a secular culture like we live in today. I invite you as we sing this next song, Lord, to continue to speak to us. To touch certain places in our lives and our hearts. Maybe inconsistencies, maybe areas where we we're just looking to get by and keep favor with people. And if we continue to go down that road, we could deny you. Lord, help us to say yes to you in our practical daily decisions and see you lifted up in all manner of ways, in all the different areas of life. There's so much represented in this room. We're all over this campus. Would you help us in the different places, in the different departments that we are present in to lift up your name, Jesus? even if it means persecution. Would you help us tenderly, yet with strength, bring people around us to the recognition that they are not okay without Jesus and that they cannot fix themselves? Lord, help us to do this. Help us to do it in our daily lives and help us to do it in such a way that we'll be made ready to say yes to you no matter what the cost. Amen.